RetroSeasons.com for more sports history. Phil Rizzuto's Sports Caravan. And now let's climb aboard the Sports Caravan again for a news-packed, feature-filled quarter hour with baseball's number one shortstop star of the world champion New York Yankees, and in 1950 voted the American League's most valuable player, Phil Rizzuto. Thanks, Bob, and hello again, fans. Just recently, around the batting cage before a ball game, we were swapping baseball anecdotes, and one came up about our old friend Lefty Gomez that I thought was worth passing on. Gomez was a great pitcher for the Yankees, but everybody knew he was also nuts about airplanes. He'd even stop in the middle of a game to gape at a passing plane, and Lefty's manager, Joe McCarthy, was always warning him not to ever go up in one. Well, one day during spring training, McCarthy saw a plane stunning and doing all kinds of flip-flops right over the field. He looked for Gomez to tell him about it, but couldn't find him. Next day, McCarthy found Lefty and told him about the plane he missed. You mean that red plane, Gomez asked? That's right, McCarthy answered. Did you see it, too? See it, was Lefty's ready reply. I was in it. <laughs> they sure don't have so many colorful ball players around the majors these days, do they, Phil? No, sir, Bob, but we still get plenty of kicks out of recalling old Lefty's gags and wits. Now, what do you say we dip into our mailbag and see what some of our listeners want you to comment on this week, Phil? Good idea, Bob. Do you have our first letter? Yes, Phil, I do, and it's from David Battolino of Reading, Pennsylvania. He wants to know how batters and base runners get their signals from the dugout, the coaches, or by some prearranged method. Well, in our club, David, we get our signals from the third base and first base coaches. If you're a left-handed batter, you take the signal from the third base coach. And if you're a right-handed batter, you take it from the first base coach. Sometimes, though, for certain situations, the batter takes charge and flashes the signs. I'll give you an example. We were playing Cleveland in an important game back in 1951. The score was tied in the last of the ninth, and we had the winning run on third base. Joe DiMaggio was that man on third, and Joe was really fast on the base. You were at bat, weren't you, Phil? That's right. I was at bat, Bob. And I took the first pitch from Bob Lemon, their pitcher, and the ump called it a strike. Those Indian infielders at first and third came charging in with the pitch, so we knew they were expecting us to pull the squeeze play. Between pitches, they were watching for me to flash the manager's sign. So I purposely started an argument with the umpire over the pitch to distract their attention. Well, what happened then, Phil? Well, while I was staging this mock argument, I slipped the manager's squeeze sign, and on the next pitch, when the Indians were probably expecting me to hit away, I laid down the bunt which scored Joe D. with the winning run. Well, they must have been surprised. Well, they were, Bob, but it's spots like that when the batter gives the signs, because it's often better for the batter to set up the play when he's ready. Say, Phil, here's a letter from Kenneth Fisher of Plainfield, Iowa, who wants to know if there's any prescribed diet that ball players should stick to during the season. Oh, yes, Bob, definitely. There are a few set foods that baseball players are urged to eat. Steaks, of course. That good red meat is a must on any player's menu. You've got to have plenty of strength and energy to play out there every day, and those thick sirloins and T-bones sure do the trick. We've also got to take it easy on starchy foods because it's the starches that fatten you up and slow you down. Sometimes ball players need special foods. You remember a few years ago when Allie Reynolds of our club was needing help in the late innings. Yeah. Well, the doc club doctor found out he had a vitamin C deficiency which sapped his strength. So, since then, Allie's been eating orange slices in the dugout between innings to give him immediate extra energy. And if you've been reading those box scores closely, you'll see Reynolds has been finishing his ball games right along. Well, it's not as much fun eating orange uh, <laughs> peels as minute steaks. Oh, no. <laughs> well, time for one more letter. This one from Jerry Manor of Oakland, California, who would like to know how far around the world baseball has spread. 
Well, interest in baseball outside the United States, so far as I know, began in the late 20s, and a few years later, Lefty O'Doul took a team of barnstorming major leaguers to Japan for a series of games against the top Jap teams. And you know, an American nine never lost a game in Japan until 20 years later, when O'Doul again led a barnstorming club through Japan. During World War II, of course, G.I.s brought baseball to such lands as England, Holland, Italy, Australia, and Africa. Well, I'm afraid that's all Phil has time for in the mailbag today. But you fans, and yes, you lady fans included, who have any sports questions you'd like answered, drop a card or letter to Phil, and he'll try to read yours. Address all mail to Phil Rizzuto in care of this station. That address again for your sports questions is Phil Rizzuto in care of this station. We'll forward it to Phil for his attention. Today my guest star is Mel Allen, my favorite sports announcer, and I'm sure the favorite of millions around the country. Welcome aboard the sports caravan, Mel. Thanks a lot, Phil. It's an honor to be with you. Well, Mel, how long have you been with the Yankees now? Since 1939, Phil. That sort of puts me in here a little ahead of you, huh? You're not kidding. It's happened by <laughs> two years. I didn't know you were here that long. Sure. I remember when we were all talking about that great second-base combination coming up from Kansas City. As a matter of fact, from Norfolk and going to Kansas City, Rizzuto and Pretty, and we followed you and... You and Jerry and looked at those big batting areas and said, well, and <laughs> Crosetti and those fellas, you know, and Gordon, maybe go, well, we, we got somebody coming up. But I remember when you came in, I was an assistant broadcaster for the Yankees in 1939. We used to do the home games, the Yankees and Giants. Uh-huh. And then I took over the top spot in 1940 and been here ever since, except for three years in service. Well, listen, you've seen Lou Gehrig play then, right? Yeah, I saw Lou, of course, in 1939. And naturally a tremendous guy. I'll never forget... One day on the bench, I think you were here then. I know you were here. Word came along that Lou was coming in. And, of course, in his late days, he couldn't walk very well. I was sitting on the bench during batting practice. And he came in and sat down. Everybody said, hi, Lou, and gave him the old big hello like nothing mm-hmm. was wrong. And he wasn't ill or anything. So everybody got up to take infield. And I was still there, ready to go up to the radio booth. And he suddenly turned to me. And, of course, I was sitting there in awe of the man, always did. And he just turned and looked, and he said, You know, I never knew what radio meant to anyone. He says, After all, I always played the game. But he said, Since I've been sick, he says, It's been my salvation. Well, I tell you, uh, all I, I couldn't even thank him. Tears just welled up my eyes, and I just whirled off the, da- the, the bench and, and rushed down the runway and ball like a baby and went oh. on upstairs. I just couldn't, uh, you know, it just affected me that way. Well, how about that? Gosh, I mean, uh, to think Lou would say that after all those years he'd been playing. Well, listen, you know, I just said how about that, but how did you come about to start that saying? I mean, you've got everybody in the country saying how about that. That was something that I didn't even know. Of course, I've used that expression all my life, as have almost uh, uh, every person, as has almost every person who's ever lived in the South, particularly. It's, it's basically a Southern expression. Uh, in the way it's used, you describe almost any kind of an emotion with it. And it was just part of my natural, everyday conversation. A lot of guys in the Army used to say it, too, and they'd distort it a little bit. Get, <laughs> they'd, they'd kid a Virginian, you know, a Virginian, oh, yeah. and instead of saying house, will say hoose or something, and say, how boot that, you know, <laughs> yeah, and stuff like that. Well, I uh, didn't know, I wasn't using the expression uh, for the purpose of making people uh, use it as a catchphrase or anything. The only thing I could trace it to, one day we're doing a broadcast here at the stadium, and I heard the people hollering every once in a while, shouting something, and I'd look around, two dugouts, maybe I was missing some, or in the stands, nothing going on at the field uh, at that particular moment, and I'd ask the people working with me, what's hollering? Well, he didn't know. 
So suddenly about the sixth inning, and this is the truth, Phil. Somebody hit a ball to you, and you made an outstanding play. Mm-hmm. And to get to throw the man out, and I said, how? I was just about in the middle of saying, how about that, uh, the great stop you made? And it suddenly dawned on me, that's what these people were hollering. <laughs> well, Nello, it was wonderful having you with us, and I hope that you'll be saying how about that for many more years to come. I hope so, Phil. I hope I'll have the privilege of saying it about you and your scintillating play for many more years to come. Good luck. Thank you, Mel. Say, how many of you fans would like to be a baseball manager? I'll bet most of you have pictured yourselves masterminding some big league team. Well, each time, two fans will get just that opportunity on this program. And now here's Phil again to tell you all about it. Well, that's right, Bob. On each program, I'm going to recall a crucial moment from a regular major league ball game. The situation that I present calls for managerial strategy. I'll give the names of pinch hitters, relief pitchers, and other subs who are available for the spot. Then it's up to my two competing fans to come up with their own winning solution. For participating, our guest fans will receive a year's free subscription to Sport Magazine. Today I have with me two of my very dear friends, Frank Scott, who was also my agent, and Al Brown, a very personal friend of mine. Already then, here's the problem, fellas. The White Sox were playing the Tigers at Detroit with a pair of ace left-handers, Billy Pierce and Hal Newhouser, locked in a scoreless battle for three innings. Chicago broke the deadlock with two runs in the fourth inning, and in the sixth, Minnie Minoso's home run put the White Sox ahead by a score of three to nothing. Pierce was pitching a nifty three-hitter up to this point, but in the seventh frame, the Tigers struck back. Steve Suchak socked a homer with a man on base to cut Chicago's lead to three to two, and with two out in the same inning, Neil Berry and Fred Hatfield banged out singles. That brought to the plate Jerry Pretty, hard-hitting Tiger second baseman and a right-handed batter. Detroit had Vic Wirtz and Cliff Mapes, a couple of long-ball left-handed hitters ready as pinch hitters, too. Chicago manager Paul Richards had Harry Dorish, ace right-handed relief pitcher, warming up in the bullpen, along with Howie Judson, another righty. Pierce seemed to be losing his stuff, but was rated the most effective pitcher on the White Sox staff. Richards called time and walked out to the mound. Now, that's the spot. What would you do in this situation if you were Paul Richards, the Chicago manager? Lift Pierce... Gamble on Judson, who hadn't been seeing much action, or what? You tell me. Frank Scott, you tell me first. I would go along with Pierce, Phil, for the simple reason that if he were to lift Pierce, I'm sure that the uh, Detroit manager would insert a man like Vic Wirtz in there who's about as dangerous a left-hand hitter as any. And I think that Wirtz would have a better chance of hitting Dorish than uh, Pretty would have of hitting Pierce. Sounds good. How about you, Al? I think I would take uh, Pierce out of there in a situation like that and bring in a fresh pitcher. All right, well, there were two very good answers. It just so happens that Al Brown was right on this one because after he called time, Richards decided to take out his trying, tiring pitcher, Pierce, and bring on Dorish, his top relief man. And Richards proved right because Dorish held Detroit to one hit the rest of the way as Chicago won 3-2. to two. But I wouldn't feel too badly, Frank, on that because you gave a very good answer. I mean, uh, Dorish was just as liable to come in, and as you say, words could have parked one in the upper deck, or Pierce could have stayed in and retired pretty. But as a result, both you fellows will receive a... A free subscription for one year from Sports Magazine. Thanks very much for being with us. Well, the sports caravan is about reached trail's end for this time. Tune in again when I return with letters from you fans, another baseball situation feature, and my special guest star next time around on the sports caravan. Till then, this is Phil Rizzuto saying so long. Phil Rizzuto's Sports Caravan was written and produced by Mort Katok and directed by Ray Chambers. This is Robert Gladstone speaking.